Today's plan is Exodus 28 through 31. The title of this message is Dressed Like a Tabernacle. The priest's garments. Now, one of the things I think that we've mentioned in the past is the, the difference between law and covenant, where what law does is it, it addresses somebody's conduct. Uh, in, a, in a sense, law, law teaches a value system, but it's within a relationship, which is what a covenant does. A covenant addresses a relationship. So within this relationship that God is making in this covenant that's been ratified with Israel, he's giving instruction which addresses their conduct. You know, the, the law is instructing them and in, in teaching particular things and uh, how they should understand life and how they should live within that relationship. So what, what are the three major things that the law gives instruction in? That was it. So God is holy. You're not. You need a God-man mediator, right? And you know, the covenant is the context in which those things are, are taught and that you're going to continue to see this sort of tension between the, the need for a mediator within the instructions and tabernacle worship and the priest place and Israel's place. And the, the tension that exists here is that Israel's in the courtyard. They're outside of the holy place and the holy of holies. They're not in that place. They're outside of it, you know, which was, we talked about the tabernacles, a picture of Eden. You know, that's where God's holiness is. It's protected by the, the cherubim and, you know, Israel and all of mankind is outside of that. But what God shows is that he wants that kind of relationship like there was in Eden with his people. But for them to enter into that relationship, what needs to happen? Yeah, atonement. Atonement's a big word. So if you want an A, go for the word that starts with A, atonement. So we've only, you need a mediator, but what does the mediator have to do? You know, you see how the instruction keeps building out. You know, that's why on top of the ark, which represented God's presence, the atonement, you know, the thing that's it's translated mercy seat, it's just the word atonement, that has to be made to enter into that relationship where you're in the presence of God, which is what, that's the big thing that the priests teach. You know, they don't, actually end up accomplishing it. They just teach that you need this atonement, but it's going to come through, you know, a prophet who's greater than Moses, a, a priest who's higher than the high priest, you know, somebody who can make an atonement one time and be done with the thing, and it doesn't have to be continual. But the law is always pointing to that. Another way that we talk about how the law instructs is using the language of the law points you know, the, the law doesn't save, the law doesn't transform, it doesn't accomplish any of these things, but it 
it points to the one who does. It points to the mediator, the need for him and the atonement that he accomplishes. And all of this worship within the tabernacle and the priesthood that we're going to read about, it all ties back into creation and the purpose of creation, which was what? What was the purpose of all creation? Yeah, to, to reflect God's glory to the ends of the earth, from the capital city, the Holy of Holies, to the rest of the earth, which would be the holy place. So that everything would be that. And so this, this tabernacle would remind the Israelites of Eden and the fact that they're outside of that, but they're also like everybody else in that way. They're not looking at it and seeing, oh, well, you know, the Hivites and the Hittites and the Rephaim and the Canaanites are in there, but we're not. It's like nobody's in there. Uh, we're just like everybody else, and we all need atonement to enter into this relationship with the Creator. And so what the priesthood does is they show how to enter into the holy place. And in doing this, they teach Israel their role as well. Remember in Exodus 19, Israel's role was to be a kingdom of priests, right? So that the priests are teaching them what their role is so that the priest says, what we are for you, you guys are for the world. You know, all of Israel is a kingdom of priests to extend the blessing promised to Abraham. So within the you know, the tension of what you're seeing in the tabernacle, it relates to both worship and the role of a priest. Because this is what God's instructed. This is how you worship and, and why. And it, the tensions that are raised in the mind is like, well, how can anybody enter into the holy place? Because you can think about that with Adam and Eve looking at the angel army and Eden. It's like, well, who can do that? Like, who could walk back in there? It's like, well... Nobody, unless they're atoned for, unless somebody can come out of there, atone for them, and then bring them back into there. But then when it comes to the priesthood, it's like, well, who can be a priest like that? I mean, what, what priest is so holy that he could actually accomplish making God's people actually holy and bring them into the holy place? Uh, how, how can an outsider, a sinful outsider, become a holy insider? Well, this is part of the role of the priest. You know, they help to understand Israel's role, what's needed for worship, what God requires, the atonement that we need. And it's helping us to understand a theology of worship. So you think about that, that you know, this still instructs us today and to some of the basic things of worship, and I plan to mention those as we work through this text together. And if I ever say something, you know, you have questions about a term I use, or you want me to slow down so you can take your notes, you can hold your hand or up or something. <laughs> I'll consider being merciful to you for a moment. Exodus 28, 
looking there, we begin talking about the, the priest garments. And this chapter begins saying, Now as for you, bring near to yourself Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And listen to this statement here. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you hear that phrase at the beginning of this chapter, that they're holy garments for glory and for beauty. And if you look at verse 40 in the chapter, toward the end of it, it says, for Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics. You shall also make sashes for them, and you shall make caps for them for glory and for beauty. So here you hear that repetition on you know, each side of this chapter that the, the focus of their clothing was for glory and for beauty. So the idea of glory was a reflection of God's character. It was a reflection of his ways and his work. And this is also for beauty, which we had talked about. It's not only, it's not only the aesthetic and how they would dress, that it would be beautiful and the adornment of the attire that they would have, but what's especially beautiful is that it's communicating truth. Beauty is attached to the concept of truth. So with these concepts of for glory and for beauty, it's teaching God's likeness, God's truth, and the priests are to conform to that. You know, they're to be that and a picture of it in everything that they do. They're to conform to God's holiness. But you have to see it's not, this isn't only a, a necessity, it's a privilege. It's not just you have to conform to God's holiness, but you get to do this. And, and God has made a way for it to be possible. Uh, you don't have to be a outsider forever. You know, God can fix that problem. So the beginning and the end of the priesthood is that they're to be holy to the Lord, which is a something that will be you know, on, on their garments. It'll be embroidered into it. And it's a phrase that you're going to hear about throughout the rest of Scripture being holy to the Lord, which is showing that, that God is connected to them. You know, there's not just a separation. There, there is a connection, but the one who's pursuing that relationship and making it possible is God alone. And the priesthood, they're, they're demonstrating this to Israel. They're saying being holy to the Lord is possible. And, and the way that it works is the way that we do all of this worship. And then Israel as a whole is displaying that to the world who would watch how they would carry out their worship in the wilderness. And their, Israel's role connects to the church's role as well and that we're also to be a display of God's holiness to show people you know, how their separation from God can be reconciled through the atonement of Christ. So the better we understand Israel's role, they instruct us on what the church's role is. 
And you see that in how, you know, in First Peter, he picks up on quoting Exodus 19 of Israel being a kingdom of priests. He says the church is a royal priesthood. And what he, what he changes in stating that differently is removing the sort of political element that was unique to, to Israel from the church because the church isn't a, a political entity, but it's a discipleship evangelism ministry, and that's the, the connecting similarity. Now, when you look at the, the materials that are used in making these holy garments, if you look in verse 6, this is 28.6, it talks about the ephod, which is kind of more of like a, a, an apron, and it says, they shall also make an ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful designer, uh, of the skillful designer, okay? So remember those two concepts of glory and beauty. How does this uh, connect to God's glory? In particular, when we talked about the tabernacle last week, we talked about those Colors, gold, blue, purple, scarlet. What did we learn about what those taught about God's glory? Yeah, it's connected to the sky. You know, the, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. And it's, a, and it's like, well, why is everything gold? Because it's to reflect the purity and holiness of God's character. And with this fine, twisted linen, it's like, well, why is it twisted together? Well, it's to show that there, there can be a, a connection made man to God and God to man. You know, these things can be twisted together into being one. And this ends up being important once you get to Samuel, you know, who is a priest, prophet wearing these garments, you, you see him being a connection point of God to man and man back to God. It's kind of like when you tie you know, electrical wires together. You know, the, the lead wire doesn't work unless they're tied together. If they're just apart, no electricity. You connect them, now there's a connection in it, and it functions as one. And what you're noticing about the, the priest is that they are dressed like the tabernacle. The, you know, what, what do you think is the significance of that? Well, let's just start with, what's the significance of the tabernacle? Yeah, it's God dwelling with man. And so if they're, they're dressed like that, where is... Where is God intending his dwelling place to actually be? In man, right? Since in the tabernacle, God's presence and dwelling is in there. But now the priest is wearing that, so he's teaching God's, you guys are going to be the tabernacle. Now, I'm going to come and live in you, and the way that I'm going to spread my glory to the ends of the earth is by indwelling you, which is very much pictured in the beginning of, the book of Ezekiel, when he's called, comes to his 30th birthday, 
when he would become a priest, but he's in exile. He's grieving the fact that he, you know, he can't become a priest within Israel because he's, he's out in, in exile. But the surprise birthday present he gets is that the spirit comes and dwells in him. So instead of being a priest that connects others to the tabernacle, he becomes the tabernacle. And that's what all of that stuff is about. It talks about the, the spheres that are on the temple moving about through creation. They can go north, south, east, west. They can see every direction, go every direction. It's talking about God's tabernacle can go anywhere at once on the earth to, to spread its glory, and nothing can inhibit it. You know, because it, its tires aren't like the tires on a car that can only go a particular direction, but their their spheres are like a gyroscope. They can go any any direction that God wants them to go, and nothing hinders that from happening, even being in exile, as Ezekiel was. So we see that you know God's plan wasn't just that. People have this external worship and these, this external clothing, but it was all communicating the, this inward reality of worshiping him from the heart of God dwelling in man to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. The point is that you know, everything is to become the tabernacle on the planet. Now, you, you know this phrase that we use sometimes, we say, well, if everything is this, then nothing is that. Well, that's true for the, the tabernacle, temple, sanctuary. When you get to the end of the Bible and Revelation, it says that there is no what anymore. No yeah, there's no more temple because everything's temple. You know, if everything's temple, then it's like nothing's temple. It, it, there's no boundaries to God's glory anymore. It's just everywhere. So in the eternal state, there's no temple because everything's temple at that point. And this place, which is a people, is called the New Jerusalem there at the end of Revelation. And you'll remember that it's a cube, it's a perfect cube as it's described in Ezekiel. Why does he describe it as a, a perfect cube? It's to connect to what part of the tabernacle? <laughs> yeah, the Holy of Holies specifically, which is like a connection to Eden was the capital city. You know, it was the Holy of Holies, but everything else was to become the holy place. But what happened was, you know, the Holy of Holies, capital city, was dropped down, Eden, but it didn't extend to the ends of the earth. So, well, that, that's going to happen in the future. There's going to be this new Jerusalem, which is it's a perfect cube to represent its perfection, but it's going to be the thing that's used to make everything else the holy place. This is the kind of relationship that God's going to have with his creation and how things are going to end, but you see the, the beginning of all of that theology is found early on, even here in, in Exodus as we're seeing it develop. In 
It says, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the second stone according to their birth. Now with these two stones and the names of the sons of Israel, how we should keep reading. Okay, verse 11 says, As a jeweler engraves a signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them all around in filigree settings of gold. Why are they covered in gold? Yeah, it's like, you guys are to reflect the glory of God. But, so the stones are representing, you know, two sets within Israel that are to reflect the glory of God. And then in verse 12, it says, you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. So what, what do you think that that communicates about them being on the shoulders Yeah, and the government shall be upon his. Yeah, never has the word shoulders had more syllables than in Handel's Messiah. That's almost like a Josh Garrels song or something. But you see that sort of idea. It's a, you know, what God is communicating is that He cares about His people and He carries them on his shoulders. He says, and these are stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. He says, you know, remember how I'm the one who carried you out of Egypt. I'm the one who protected you. I'm the one who provided you. I'm the one who made this relationship. You know, it's to remember all of those sort of things. And it says, and Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. So you see, the the high priest is remembering God's people, which he's ordained to be on the shoulders of the high priest who would govern this people. And you see with the priest that what what he's doing is that he's mediating God's glory to to fill Israel as it fills himself. And so you see within worship that it's not just personal, it's corporate. You know, there, there isn't some sort of privatized religion of the priest and a separate sort of public religion that only happened sometimes. You know, it always concerned the individual and you know, the corporate part of worship. They, they were never separated. There wasn't, you know, private and public worship. There was just worship, and it involved you and everybody around you. It was always, you know, God and connecting with a body of people, which is personal, but it's not personal only. Therefore, it can't be personalized. It's always connected to this sort of family relationship with the priest as he mediates on behalf of people, it, it helps us to understand Jesus's priesthood. 
You think about how you know he carried his people on his shoulders in John 17 and interceding for them and praying for them as a high priest would and, and mediating through prayer, but he would also be everything that was pictured in you know the worship of the tabernacle in the priesthood and that he would be the sacrifice, the atonement. He would be the priest carrying his people on his his shoulders. And the in that prayer you see that he's not he's not only praying for an individual, but he's praying for this whole group who will believe. You know, he talks about you know he's praying this, you know, not only for the disciples, but also those who whom you have given me, all of them that you have given to me. So these two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephah, they remind of the that there's a mediating role that God has supplied to connect this relationship together and that he does carry them, but he's teaching who it is that's going to carry them. There's going to be this ultimate high priest in the future who will do this, and there is stones of remembrance that, you know, when Israel would come to the point, well, how do we know that God cares for us? How do we know that we can have that kind of relationship with them when we look separated, you know, we're in the courtyard, or later on we're in exile. You know, how do we know? It's like, well, we need to be reminded of what he has done, because when we were a people separated from him in Egypt, what did he do? He brought us near. You know, they would need to be in remembrance of the kind of God who cares and how he cares for him, and to, to trust that he's going to do that again, but even greater So the two stones and the shoulder pieces show that there's a mediator between God and man who brings his covenant to remembrance, which we talked about sometime in the past. The idea of remembrance is he's bringing it forward. It's not like God forgets sometimes and he remembers, but he's bringing it to other people's remembrance to show that I'm still being faithful and things are still moving forward. But the priest also mediates the relationship not only of God to man, but man to God. And you see this in the breast piece of judgment. Verse 15, you shall make a breast piece of judgment, the work of a skillful designer like the work of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. You shall make it. Now the word judgment isn't always negative. It's, it's giving you God's thinking. It's giving his his verdict, his worldview, his decisions on how to do things in the world. So where the two stones represent you know, man to God, the breastpiece represents you know God to man, saying this is his kind of thinking. This is how he is your guide. And once again, there's gold within them to signify God's glory being imaged through the whole community. And if you look in verse 29, it says, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he comes into the holy place for a remembrance before Yahweh continually. Now this was a communication that, that God is to be loved with the whole heart. And 
it was also showing that, that God cares and he shows that, that care through his high priest. And the reason that Aaron cares as a mediator is because God cares. And his care is continual. It doesn't have any sort of break in it. In verse 30, we read that you shall put in the breastpiece of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he comes in before Yahweh, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before Yahweh continually. The Urim and Thummim, however you want to pronounce that, the Urim and the Thummim, the words mean you know, white and colored in, or light and dark. That's what these, whatever these things were, what they did was they gave God's judgment somehow. You know, it separated light from dark, separated true knowledge from ignorance of God. And it was a way that God communicated with man for a time to show you do have a relationship with me. You can see that, that I do communicate to you and guide you because I care about you. And that's part of what the priest does. You know, teach them, this is how wor worship works. It's a, it's a display of God's care for you and him giving you his guidance and you walking in that guidance. And throughout this whole section, you know, as we had mentioned, the, you know, the phrase holy to the Lord gets you know, written upon their garments. It's echoed throughout scripture many, many times. That's the focus. The focus is holiness. It's having this sort of fearful reverence and approaching God in everything that you do in life. And God gave this sort of built-in alarm system to help them remind of that, that seriousness that they are to approach him. And that's in verses 33 to 35. It says, you, you shall make on it him pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around its hand, him and bells of gold between them all around, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, all around on the hem of the robe, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and it shall, its sound shall be heard when he comes into the holy place before Yahweh and when he goes out so that he will not die. It says, I don't know if this was a like a fire alarm bell sort of thing where you know everybody's in a panic when they're hearing this really loud sound, but it was maybe more of a gentle sort of bell that was just a reminder, this is very serious. You know, if you approach God in the wrong way, you die. But there's this continual sound that you're hearing that's reminding you of that. It was a singular note of God's holiness and approaching him in worship in the holy way that he has prescribed in his word. Verses 36 through 38 says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a signet, holy to Yahweh. You shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban and it shall be at the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel set apart as holy with regard to all their holy gifts, 
shall be continually on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. So, you know, holiness should be at the forefront of Aaron's mind. Everything should be holy. Uh, garments, gifts, people, everything. Everything's holy to the Lord. There aren't any exceptions in that. And what's being taught here is that you know these priests have a, a special dedication to God, which everybody should have. It wasn't like when Israel came to watch the, the priesthood perform their worship, the, those were the professional worship guys. You know, they do that, and we just watch them do it every now and then. But what it was teaching them is what they were to be about every day of their lives and absolutely everything that they did. So this idea of being holy to Yahweh, total consecration, total dedication, and then closing there at verse 40, it's for glory and beauty. It's for living holy lives, which images God's glorious likeness, which is what truth is, the beauty of truth being lived. Because when God is lived for, it's a display of what is truly beautiful, which isn't craftsmanship only, but even the, the attitude and behavior of being a, a, a creature of God within his creation. Yeah, that, that's why I describe it like as, as an alarm bell. So the bell's going off because if he, if he worships God in an unholy way, he'll die. He won't die because of the bell, but the bell's just a reminder, keep doing the holy thing. Because if you don't, you will die. So if they know that the bell stops, then they know. This, no, no. Because it, it never says, and there is a rope on the bell that is tied to him. <laughs> but uh, some people have presupposed a rope, but I have not read of any rope okay. in, in the text. So... I've chosen to not go beyond what is written. <laughs> there was kind of a bell going off in my mind while that was. <laughs> uh. If we have time for a little bonus round, I'll explain those sacrifices in Ezekiel 40 through 48 that are so peculiar to people. If we have time and you're really that interested. 29, chapter 29. This shows what the priests are set apart to. This is what they're set apart to. It says, now, this is what you shall do to them to set them apart as, as holy to minister as priests to me. And, it, and this is what those mysterious sacrifices are about in Ezekiel 40 through 48. It, it's, it's how priests are ordained. When people get hung up and they say, well, what are they doing? What are Levitical priests doing making sin sacrifices in the, the future for atonement of sins? Well, where, where they're confused is that they think that 
those old sacrifices actually atone for sins. They don't. That's not what they're doing. It's about their ordination process of being set apart for God. And that's the crux of the issue. But you see, it's based on this. So you can just keep that in mind. It's a, you know, this is how the priests are set apart. You know, take one bull from the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. Why are they unleavened? Yeah, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the, the old way of life, the sin is to be purged out. You can't even have a little bit of that mixed in or it'll cause the whole bread cake wafer to rise. It says, and you shall put them in one basket and bring them near and a basket along with the bull and the two rams. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons near to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons near and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them. And They shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So this is what the priests were set apart unto. It was a demonstration of God's glory and what they wore and how they lived. But it was also to mediate God's glory, to show people this is what it's like. Uh, this is how you're connected to it. But it was also for them to enjoy. They were to enjoy the, the worship and the fellowship and everything that, that came with that. It didn't come upon them as a, as a burden, but the way to, to fellowship with God and others who are being brought near to him. And so what they did was they facilitated God's glory from man to God and God back to man. In verses 10 through 30, we read of three different offerings. There's a bull offering, a ram that's a burnt offering, and then another ram that's an ordination offering. The bull offering and verse 14 says, but the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now it's a sin offering, not in that it actually atoned for sin, but it shows that sin needs to be removed outside of the camp. You know, it was something that instructed them in that. If you're going to have fellowship with God, the sin has to be taken out of the camp. And this was true not only for the priests, but also for the people, which they would offer a ram burnt offering, which you read of that in verse 18, you shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to Yahweh. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to Yahweh. What do you think was taught in having a burnt offering?
Yeah, that's and what that's specifically built into is you know that last offering, which was to remind that sin needs to, you need to be made holy like God. The burnt offering is that the entirety of your life is to be burnt up to Him. You know, it, it's that you know after all of that, you know, the sin is taken out. Uh, you you're to by the mercies of God, you live as a living sacrifice. That's the sort of theology that's being taught here and Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 12. Thank you. Good job. <laughs> so it's about you know, total consecration, total dedication. It's not just you know, part of your life burns for God, but the whole of it burns for him. And then the ram or ordination offering, you read this in Verse 22 says, you shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the lobes of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. Somebody ever slaughters a ram or a cow, you can watch it sometime. There is fat on all of those things. This was a ram of ordination. Uh, this is a show that you know, through these other offerings, this, this is what it builds up to. So you need to be made holy like God is holy. And if that happens, then everything in your life is totally set apart to him and you have fellowship with him. That's the, the next part that gets brought in is now you have fellowship with God. You've been ordained to belong to him by him making atonement for you and setting you apart to himself in holy obedience. The reason that they get to eat this meal together is because there can be peace with God where you can sit at the same table with them and eat. And this is something that would continue for seven days, which was a reminder of God creating his creation to enter into that kind of rest and fellowship with, with God. It's showing what that relationship with God should be like. It, it should be like a, a marriage supper of the lamb as the concept that's being built. And as you go on in verses 31 through 46 in chapter 29, you have not, you know, the priest and the altar are consecrated to God. You know, not only the, the ones who carry out the worship, but even the tools that they have. You know, everything's to be set apart to them. And this is how uh, the system is brought in. You know, the priests are consecrated and how the worship is carried out is consecrated as well. So when you read Hebrews chapter 9, we've read that once or twice in the past as we've gone through this section, but it talks about how Jesus consecrates a new system through his blood. It's like now you get a new priest that's better. You get you know, new ways of worship which are better, which is why you can't go back to the old system. It's being preached in Hebrews. I mean, why would you want that 
when what those things are instructing in has come, namely Jesus has come and he's instituted a new system by the exact same principles. You know, the same way that you know, those priests became priests and you know, atonement was made, all of that sort of stuff and how a new system was run. He did all of that. So if you want to be faithful to the old system, you actually have to go into the new system. In verses 42 through 46, it, you know, it, it uh, answers the question, you know, who's going to do all of this stuff? Who's going to uh, you know, accomplish all of the stuff that's being instructed through this worship? I'll pick up in ver- verse uh, 42. So it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, and I will meet with you to speak to you there. I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be set apart as holy by my glory. So what, what is it that makes holy? He says, it's cool. It doesn't say, you know, this law will make you holy. He says, the way that you'll be made holy is my glory, you know, my presence. Can you think of a verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says something like that? You know, in, in beholding you know, the glory of Jesus Christ, we're being transformed. You know, that's what transforms us is his presence in us and being beheld by us. Picking up verse 44, he says, I will set the tent of meeting and the altar apart as, as holy. So the worship place and everything involved in it, he's the one who sets it apart. I will also set Aaron and his sons apart as holy to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh, their God. That's the point of everything in all of this worship. It's, this is kind of like a, a, a repeated conclusive statement. You know, what's the point of all of this? What's the, the goal of all of this? So, well, you know, how, how can the priest have that kind of connection? God says, I will make him holy. You know, how, how can we have this kind of connection to a holy God? I will do that to you. It's like, well, how can we dwell with God? He says, I will come and dwell among you. You know, it's not, you guys try to come up here to me. See if you can get up here on top of the burning, quaking mountain. You know, it doesn't work like that. He says that he's coming to them. And he says, when that happens, you'll know that I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among you. That's the end goal. And then when you read about the new covenant in Jeremiah 33, it says when all of this is accomplished, nobody will have to say to his neighbor, no Yahweh, everybody's just going to know him. So he says, I am Yahweh, their God. He says, you're going to know that. When everything that's accomplished that I'm instructing you in right now is accomplished, that's how things are going to be. Chapter 30. You have the altar of incense there, which demonstrates Israel's role in holiness, the consecration of the system. Here's what incense does. It makes smoke. It's kind of, it functions like the veil. You can't, you can't see, you can't see God. There's this separation between man and God, but 
there's also this reality in that you get to participate in something that reminds you of that. So you see that, that tension still there. There can be this relationship in worship, but it reminds us that this relationship isn't what it ought to be yet. And this was continually burning as a reminder that the God's presence will continually be with his people until the smoke is blown away, if you want to put it that way. In verses 11 through 16, you have a, a, he talks about if you take a census, you people are going to pay some atonement money, which is helps you to understand census is bad. You take census, atonement needs to be made. Can you think of a king who took a census and it was bad? Yeah, David. And, oh yeah, by the way, uh, all of these things where we're getting into, we're getting into the rapid fire days of creation. Every time it says Yahweh also spoke to Moses saying, it's paralleling another day in creation. That starts in 3011. That's the second day of creation. Then verse 17, third day, verse 22, fourth day. And it keeps going like that till you get to the seventh day, Sabbath. But why is it, you know, taking a census is bad? Ultimately, it, it wouldn't serve what Israel wasn't to become a state. What happens when a census is taken is that data is gathered of a population so that there can be a central authority over a population to better be able to control it. And it's like, well, why, why do they organize all of that? Well, they could organize it for going to war, but it's especially organized for implementing taxing people. So a census ends up being a way of maintaining dominance over people and centralizing power into a few governing civil leaders. But what this would do is it would end up removing people from the covenant that they have with God and bringing them into a, a covenant with whoever their governors were. And so it would take them away from their allegiance to God, which this is the issue with like David taking a census, Satan tempting him to do that, and why it was bad is that it was going to his glory, centralizing power in himself, and he didn't provide a shekel for the temple. So this is what the atonement money was for. If you guys carry out a census, you should be struck in your heart that you have sinned against God and doing this, and you need to make it right by paying a, an atonement price to temple worship, to, to recognize that, this, and this is what happened when God, God has David by the threshing floor where the temple was later built, you know, the money ends up going to the future temple being built by Solomon. But what that displays is that it, the king representative, the governance uh, of people, whatever they do, it involves everybody. It's going to affect everybody. But what you should be getting everybody involved in is their relationship and service to God. That, that was, that's what the purpose of, you know, God's governance is supposed to be, bringing people and being involved with their relationship to God. And God's way to get people involved isn't by imposing taxes on them, but by bringing voluntary contributions to him, which you remember we started 
reading this in, in the building of the tabernacle, is you know, the, the man who has it in his heart to want to do these things. That's who God wanted. Not, it wasn't the one that he's going to coerce them in doing these things by taxing them. The laver for priestly washing comes up in verse 17. This ties into the third day, the sea and the land. See the obvious connection with water there. They would have to wash their hands and their feet there. The idea of you, know, you have to have clean deeds and a clean walk before God. Verse 22, there was a holy anointing of oil where they brought about the finest of spices to show that you you set apart God to God the absolute best that you have. You know, it, it demonstrates holiness that you're giving him the best. You're giving him everything. Verse 34, time of day five in creation, the incense, it's having this unique recipe to it shows the uniqueness and exclusivity of worship. Like there, there isn't anything else like the worship of God on the planet. And it can't be mixed with anything else. You can't do it a different way than uh, he prescribes that you do it. And then in chapter 31, we have Bezalel and Aholiav, which parallels day six, in which God created man. And we're in the set of days where God fills things. So what happens is he... He fills these men with his spirit. Yeah, and this is the whole point. God's, it's like the tabernacle builder guys are indwelt by God to build the place that teaches about the indwelling of his spirit. And the point that's being made is that the one whom God indwells is to be about constructing worship for him throughout the world. It reminds me of what John Piper wrote in his book, let the nations be glad. He says, you know, why, why does evangelism exist? Because worship of God doesn't. And you see that sort of concept here. It's like, well, why does the indwelling of the Spirit exist? Well, so we can be about constructing worship for God because it doesn't exist in some places. So he says, you need to be this mobile mini tabernacle that moves throughout the ends of the earth to construct worship. You know, the, the building of living stones that is building up one another by standing on Christ as the cornerstone. You see, it's a, this is why I say that this is a missionary book that's about missions because, you know, Israel, your, your, your agenda is global missions, that's how we talk about those sort of things, but you see those sort of concepts built into their worship and being taught to them. 31.12, it's the seventh day. Guess what happens on the seventh day? All right. And on the seventh day, God rested, and now he's commanding Israel to rest and giving a sign to them that this is what you need. The Sabbath sign would point them to the reality that they, they need to enter into God's rest through his mediator who deals with their sins, sin problem, bringing them before a holy God. So honoring the Sabbath and enacting, they were 
that would enact God's purpose of rest with everything being set apart to God. So in this way, Israel learns who they're to be by the priest to the whole world as they contribute to the worship worship system through holiness and obedience. So you think about that in 1 Peter, you know, he really draws on Exodus and Leviticus and two of his major themes in his book are holiness and obedience. You're a royal priesthood. What's the main things that you do? Holiness and obedience. You've been set free to holiness and obedience. Well, how, how do you engage worship with, with God? Is it just really good music? Uh, he says, no, it's holiness and obedience. It's holiness and the music and everything else. And not just obedience sometimes, but all the time. And that's our role as well, to to live in such a way in holiness and obedience that we would bring man to God and God to man. Therefore, as Paul draws on this sort of thinking in 2 Corinthians 6, he writes, starting in 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? You see, he's talking about the church there as the sanctuary or temple of God. He says, for we are a sanctuary of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them. He's quoting out of Exodus there. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So in the new covenant, we're made to to be the sanctuary temple tabernacle, which images Jesus's body temple. This is how it builds when Jesus refers to his body as being the temple. He's the temple who makes everybody else into temple. And we're to reflect what is in us. So you think about the the gold of our faith that's put in us, which is in Christ's righteousness, that righteousness is to be reflected out of our hearts. We're to reflect out what Jesus has put in us by his spirit, which is his very life, which means we must come out of the ways of the world to be a witness to the world. And so we don't touch the things that are unclean, and we're not looking for the world's welcome in anything, but doing what is pleasing to the God who has redeemed us. Our fellowship isn't to be influenced by the world, which would become the big is- issue within Israel. They, they'd keep, they would look on the stuff beyond their worship and be conformed to that rather than the stuff that he was putting right in front of them. They're not to be influenced by the world because our worship doesn't originate with the world. Our fellowship is done in separation from the world's ways, but not from the Lord's people. So you think that when you come out and be, you're to be separate from the world, it's thinking and attitudes, but you're not to come out and be separate 
from the church body because you don't like how something is done there. You're never to be disconnected from the Lord's people because the way that you grow in holiness is in the church. And think about that. One of the things we have coming up here soon in, in January is we're going to, Jim's going to start a, a parenting class. It's like, well, how do, where do you become more holy in, in parenting? Well, God's plan A is the church, and there isn't a plan B. It's just that's it. Uh, you don't have to go fishing around for some other way to do that. Uh, he's, he's provided it in church where we have the fellowship, not only of instruction in it, but we have examples of you know, other people seeking to be faithful to God and how they parent and having people who come alongside you and encourage you and, and help you, instruction, example, all of these sort of things. So our, our devotion to God can't be privatized. It's something that's done corporately. And fellowship necessarily involves others. Otherwise, you're just out to sea. It's just a ship. And there's no fellows, except you. You either just have a fellow or just have a ship, but you don't have fellowship. <laughs> All right, so I'll close us in, in prayer and be dismissed. Our gracious Lord, we praise you for the fellowship that you have brought us into by your holiness and through the atonement that was made through Jesus Christ, who is the high priest, who did what no man could do because he alone is the God-man who brings man to God and God to man. How great is the privilege and gift that we have in Christ, even to be gifts to one another in our fellowship today. We pray that you would heighten in our minds the importance and seriousness of the fellowship and worship that we have together as we are gathered as your people to be a reflection of your character in this place for the sake of your glory in the world. Amen.